Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Ruben. Hi, Teddy. So, what do you think is a Singaporean parent's worst nightmare? F in maths. <laughs> F in icons. Yeah. Your kid goes to an art stream. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I went to art stream. <laughs> I am the biggest failure. <laughs> so, Singapore is quite safe, right? Like, parents' worries are quite limited to academics, their kid dating the wrong person. Yeah, I guess like, drug abuse. In general, but you wouldn't be worried about leaving your kids at home alone. Not for a couple of hours at least, you know? Yeah, as in without like a meat or anything. Yeah, like without supervision. I guess if you're, if it's not like a like a baby, <laughs> like, but if it's like a like a kid, kid is fine. Like a kid, kid is fine, right? But yep. imagine, you're just quickly popping out for a couple of hours. Your kids they are older. They're like five to ten, primary school age. Hmm. You find all four of your children. They've been attacked. They've oh, been dear. slashed. All of them are dead in the bathroom of your family flat. In Block Fifty Eight, Gelang Baru. Hi, I'm Teddy, and I'm Ruben, and welcome to a briefcase. Today, we're covering the case of the Gelang Baru murders. Let me introduce you to the Tan family. <laughs> well, that's the most generic Singaporean name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, when you think about your typical hardworking Singaporean family in the seventies or eighties, mm. in my mind, it's like the Tan family. Okay, taxi driver dead. That's the hardest working. <laughs> no, or a hawker. It's true. It's true. Though. The hawkers and the yeah. taxi drivers are the hardest working. So we're gonna start with the parents, and the dad's name is. Tan Quen Chai and we'll call him Casey and his wife the mom's name is called Lee Mei Ng and we're gonna call her Mei Ng so Casey and Mei Ng they were a cute couple and they had four children together and we don't have the exact ages but around the time that this happened I think Mei Ng was about 31 okay they had three sons and a daughter so that's quite a lot so their sons were Guo Ping the eldest and he was about 10 years old and they had Guo Xing or Guo Xing, who was about eight, and their younger son, Guo Shun, was about six years old. So all the boys were about two years apart or around there, and they also had one daughter, Chinni, who was five years old. And all three sons went to Bedemir Road Primary School, and their daughter went to a People's Association kindergarten, like a PAP kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Wait, um. They had all these kids by the time they were 31 or 32. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of kids. Oh, okay. No, people had kids <laughs> young then. Okay, so the whole family, they are very typical. And they didn't work as taxi drivers, but they worked as mini bus drivers. You know those oh, yeah, mini buses yeah, do. Tough job okay, but they had a secret, okay? The family had a secret. The parents had a secret. 
Okay. Okay, and this was something that the government kind of actively promoted at that time. They already had four kids. Mm. They were happy. Yeah. They didn't want to have any more kids. Yeah. And so Ming, she got sterilized. Okay. Why is that a secret? <laughs> I mean, Wait, this is in the seventies, is it? Yes, this so was like in the seventies. Did they have a issue with too many kids? It was when they were promoting the 1972 National Family Campaign, Family Planning Campaign. To like have only two kids. Yeah, so the campaign messages were like, small families, brighter future. Yeah, they did too two good of a job because now nobody wants kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true though. It makes sense because the other message was, the more you have, the less they get. Two is enough. Yeah, okay. So, like, even though this was being pushed by the government, right, it wasn't something like you go around and be like, hey, everybody, I got my tubes tied, you know? I suppose then maybe there was a stigma, but I mean, now, not really, right? So, Singapore in the 1970s, it wasn't like the safest, but it was reasonably safe. And I think back then, there was still like a bit of kampung spirit. I mean, now you usually don't mm. really know your neighbours, but back then, there was like... I think back then there were there were actual kampongs. <laughs> like now there's none. Is it one in Pulau Ubin maybe? Right? No, no, no. There's also one um Bangkok. Salita. Salita. Yeah, Bangkok. Okay, so like the kids would play in the corridor and there was like an auntie who would sit in the corridor and like mm. watch them and do her own thing. So I think most parents felt pretty good leaving their kids at home for a couple of hours in the morning. And this is what the Tan parents did too, you know, they have work to do, they gotta feed their big family. So this is what a usual morning looked like. In the morning, Casey and Ming, they'll wake up at like 6, 6.30am mm. and then they'll go to their job to send kids to school with their minibus. Including their own kids? No, not yet their own kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, so fun fact. Also, me and my siblings, we also took the school bus like this and the bus uncles, they're either super nice or super grumpy. There's no in-between. <laughs> they're either like the nicest uncles ever or like... They, they, they freaking hate everyone in the morning. I had, yeah, I took the school bus also. Well, I can't remember any of my <laughs> bus uncles. Like, so groggy that I just yeah. ignore them and sleep on the bus. But because they're working, they aren't there to wake their kids up and get them ready to school and everything like that, right? Right. So at around 7am, um, she'll actually call home. Ming will actually call home to wake her kids. So oh, wow, well, okay. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, you know, the hotel, what's that service called where they... Uh, yeah, right, wake right. up call. <laughs> yeah, wake up call. So, the, well, the alarm the clock is not... be awake also? Isn't... Didn't primary school start around like 7? <laughs> I don't know, maybe like 8? Maybe. Yeah, so they'll, they'll ring, ring around 7am. She'll call home, everything okay, wake up the kids. And maybe, like, yeah, like what you said, the school is closer or they start later. Mm. Yeah, I also think it's kind of nice to check in with your kids in the day. You know, be like, good morning, how are you? Everybody alright? This is the 70s. Houses had, each house had a phone already. No, not each house had a phone and we'll get to that later. Oh, okay, not okay. every house had a I'm phone. Jumping ahead. <laughs> phone, was, phone was a luxury, okay. I think, maybe. Okay, so anyway, we're still in the routine. They go to work, 7am, they call their kids. And after that, the kids will go to school themselves. Like, they're, they're supposed to let themselves out and go to school, right? Mm. And then at around 10am, the parents will come home. So this is the usual routine. Right, okay. But this is not what happened on 6 January 1979. On that day, Casey and Ming, they left their home at 6.35am. And when they left, their kids were still sleeping, okay? They checked in, their kids were still sleeping. From what I assume, the door was supposed to be locked so nobody could get in the house. Okay. But the kids could let themselves out. Mm. 
And at around 7.10am, Ming, she makes a usual call to her kids, but they don't pick up. And this is the first red flag. She doesn't call once, she calls three times. And so she's like, oh, is this a phone problem or something, right? So she calls her neighbour to check into the kids. So the neighbour is like, oh my, you have four kids who aren't picking up the phone. So she walks over and knocks on the door. She's like, hello kids. Mm. But again, no reply. She doesn't try to go in or anything. Yeah, no. Like this is alarming but this isn't like the most alarming thing like trying to rationalize this because the kids are like five six eight and ten right maybe they were distracted mm. maybe they were trying to sleep in and be naughty we don't know yeah fair enough yeah and so casey and ming they work until about 10 a.m and then they finally get home okay so they walk into the house and we know that there wasn't any signs of forced entry there were no locks that were broken. Mm. The flat looked normal. It didn't look like anyone went through it or anything. And nothing was missing. Nothing. Mm. But it was very quiet. Too quiet. And eventually, they find their children in the bathroom and just covered in blood. Oh, so yeah. the kids were in their t-shirts and underwear. And they were just piled on top of each other. There were slash wounds everywhere. At least 20 on each child. And these were like deep. Brutal slashes. These were like to prove a point. Uh, who would? That's like a monstrous thing to do. Yeah. At that point of time, the newspapers considered this as possibly the most inhuman killings yeah, in it Singapore. Yeah, sounds like. I, actually, but it's, yeah, that's quite bad. Yeah, so the police were called and somehow the news got out. Mm. And you know, most Singaporeans are very capable. Yep, unfortunately true. Yeah, so hundreds of people actually just showed up below the flat. Oh, okay. Like, they had pictures where there's just, like, crowds and crowds below the flat. What and did they want, though? As in, like, what, yeah, what I is know. the point? <laughs> it's not just news outlets. It's just, like, random people. Not just okay. neighbours and news outlets. Random people coming to see this. Mm. Yeah, and everyone was horrified. And I'm not sure if this was very fast, but the killings happened, the murders happened on the 6th of January, right? Right. But about a day later, on 7th Jan, the kids, they were buried in Chuachugang Cemetery. Oh, yeah, it's no week, I guess. Yeah, usually that's doesn't... I guess maybe because of the traumatic nature of the mm. thing they just wanted to... And also because maybe, like, a lot of people might have tried to crash the wake since yeah. it's so high profile. So the parents are like, okay, let's just have the funeral. Yeah. Now, after that, the police figured out a couple of things. The first one was that this was clearly premediated because the murderer had been very, very careful not to leave behind any evidence. Fingerprints. Yeah, there were blood stains in the sink, and it looked like the killer he actually like washed his hands and tried to clean up before this, leaving the flat. Mm. Yeah, at this time there wouldn't have been uh, well DNA testing wouldn't have been a thing yet because mm-hmm. that was made famous by the OJ Simpson trial, right? Yeah, in the eighties. So like, yeah, so this is way before that. So actually, all he had to do is just make sure no fingerprints. You looking at the autopsy? They also thought that the killer used. Like a cleaver, like a chopper, you know, like the chicken rice chopper mm. and a dagger. And a dagger. Oh. Yeah. But these suspected murder weapons were never found. It's also theorized because there were four kids, right? Yeah. They thought that there may have been more than one person. They did all of this in one day, which is pretty impressive because like they were buried the next day. So they had to do all the autopsy and everything yeah. in like a day, like 24 hours. And then they concluded all of these things. Another thing is that the police thought that the eldest son, Kuo Ping, who was 10, so 10-year-old kids are pretty big, actually. Yeah, yeah like upper primary already. Yeah, upper primary already. I think some 10-year-old kids are taller than me, like, honestly. Yeah, 
for sure. They thought that the eldest son, Kuoping, he actually fought with the killer or killers. Mm. Here's something that I think could be relevant today if they brought it up again. Right. They found long strands of hair in his hand. So they actually have the killer's hair. Oh, wow. So th- right now, they could do like DNA testing. And I mean, if they could find they, it or if they, it was relevant. I'm pretty sure the police have the like, obligation to keep like evidence for a specific period of time. Right? Yeah, but I'm not sure how long. Though. Yeah. But another thing is that your DNA wouldn't be in the police database unless you've committed other crimes before, right? Is that is that a thing? Yeah, I think that's true. I guess, I don't know, well, we, we don't really know, right? Because there's so much records that the government has that we don't actually know. <laughs> what they have. I'm sure they have like uh, blood samples in MOH. It's true, I had sure They, they took like, so much blood. Yeah, like, if they wanted to, if they really wanted to, they could go and like check. I think because there were no signs of forced entry, nothing was taken, mm. and because the killings were so brutal, they thought this could have been a revenge killing. Now, remember the Tans, remember their secret? They couldn't have any more kids, right? Yeah. And the killings happened in January, 6th January. Okay. So this was just before Chinese New Year. And two weeks later, at around Chinese New Year, they received a Chinese New Year card with children. Like, the card had children outside. You know, they always have happy children on the... As in, like, pictures of children? Yeah, like a, like a, a greeting drawing. card. A okay. Chinese New Year greeting card. Right. And the card was sent by somebody who they probably knew because it addressed them by their nicknames like Achai and Aeng. It didn't address them as Casey or Ming. Okay. And the message was, now you can have no more offspring. Ha ha ha. And this was signed by the murderer. And only people who are really... I guess nobody knows if it's the murderer or not. Yeah. I mean, like, it's yeah. likely to be the murderer. You <laughs> don't o- know. I guess we, w- we wouldn't know. If yeah, we wouldn't it could know. Could have been, like, another idiot. And only people who are close to them knew that Ming had gotten sterilized. Okay. Yeah, so either it was the murderer who was close to them, mm. or one of the people who is close to them is really fucked up. Yeah, fair enough. That's a weird thing to do. Yeah, that's a weird thing to do. And after the murder, because this was such a high-profile case, the police, they actually ended up questioning like hundreds of people, the family, neighbours, everyone. There was even, remember I said that this had the, like, the Kampung Spirit Corridor, the auntie that usually sat in the corridor, 68-year-old Yam Yin Tin. On that one day, on that one day, she wasn't sitting in the corridor. Okay. Because she was at home washing her hair. And there were a bunch of other leads. There was a taxi driver in Tuapayo who said that a limping man in his 20s hopped in his cab at block, like near block 96 at Kalang Baru Road at 8am. So this would have matched with the timeline. Okay. Yeah. And the man, apparently, he had blood stains on like the whole left side of his body and he, ca- he was carrying a knife. Oh, and the taxi driver still picked him up. Yeah, and the knife what like the clinked on the door when, when he closed the door. I see. And the man got off at Lavender Street. Okay. Yeah, and this was a very good lead, apparently, because the description of the man matched with somebody that the Tan family knew. And this was one of the Tan family's neighbours that would go to their family flat to use their phone almost every day because not everybody had a phone. Mm. I see. Okay, and this so this guy had access to the flat? Like, like the kids called him uncle. Okay. Even, and the kids would have known him and just let him in because they would have probably just thought that, oh, he's here to use the phone again. Right, but is there any, like reason why he wouldn't like the dance? No. So, the even more suspicious thing, right? So, is that in a police lineup, the taxi driver actually picked him out. The taxi driver was like, this This is is the the guy. guy. Oh, okay. 
Exactly. And why would the taxi driver have any reason to? Yeah. Yeah. This was the most promising lead, but again, there wasn't enough evidence and he was like, go after two weeks. Mm. And I mean, you can't stay in the same neighborhood after you've been accused of murdering four children, right? So him and his sister, they ended up moving out of Block 58 after. And the other leads, they weren't as substantial as this one. Like this one, they had like a witness, they had a lineup, they had like somebody who was familiar with the family. But the other leads, they, they were... They were thin. Yeah, like the police, they questioned two women on January 7th, the day after. But they didn't give any information and eventually just released those two women. Okay. And some of the neighbours, they also said that there was a witness who saw the youngest child, the daughter, struggling with a man. But nobody ever found that witness. Well, like outside the house? Like in the house. Oh, in the like house. Like they could see it from... Oh, okay. Yeah, because flats are really close to each other. Another witness actually told a Chinese newspaper that he saw a couple, like a man and a woman, and one half of the couple, either the man or the woman, they were like completely blood-stained. Mm. Like, and they saw them leaving the scene of the murder. Oh, but, wow. But, but when the police actually checked into it, it was a hoax. It was some like attention fake. seeker. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why people yeah, do that. Yeah, that's the problem with these high-profile cases. Right? You know when, like, Master Lamad escaped? Yeah. Like, I heard that, like, the Ministry of Home Affairs got, like, like hundreds of tips that they saw him <laughs> every day. <laughs> it's like, every part of Singapore, people were seeing Master Lamad. And, like, yeah, obviously all of them were fake. It's true. Like, <laughs> he wasn't even in, in Singapore at the end, right? Yeah, he wasn't. He was Malaysia. <laughs> The couple, um, Casey and Ming, after this incident, they continued staying together. Like, you know, sometimes when you have such a traumatic event, usually the couple, they either grow stronger together or more often than not, they get divorced because it's such a hard thing to remember. Mm. But they stay together and they actually registered with the social welfare department to try to adopt two kids. Mm. Yeah, So they were like trying to move on. And a couple of years later, Ming, actually she was able to reverse her sterilization because you can, you yeah, can you technically can. get your tubes untied and at 35, which is I think is still quite young, she has a son who was born on 30th December 1983. That's good that they managed to find some like solace and move on. Right? And yeah. he was 3.25 kg. Is that heavy? How, is that, how, is that, how do you know this very <laughs> specific information? It was the, in the news. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Right? They also quit the minibus business. Okay. Yeah, I think like being around kids, like, after all of this. Yeah, I don't want to speculate, but I think it's it's a bit hard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. And they ended up leaving to work for a company that produced PVC because at that point of time, Singapore was quite industrial. And to this day, their murders mm. are still unsolved. I'm pretty sure it's, it's the, the neighbour, <laughs> like, who the taxi driver picked up and who... Like, it sounds allegedly, like... Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. Opinion, opinion. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, there's a couple of theories to this, but this is the most common theory, okay? There's, I, I, later, we can go into the nonsense theories if you want, but the most common one is from this comment on YouTube by someone called Assault Days, capital A-S-O-T-D-A-Z-E. On YouTube? So this is a recent theory. Uh, yeah, so another YouTuber, I can't remember her name, she actually posted a video on this and uh, somebody commented on her video. Ooh, link in the description. Link in the description. So, apparently, the family, the Tans, Casey and Ming, they were friends with the murderer. So, one day, they were supposed to help him buy 4D. Like, hey bro, you're going to Singapore Pools, can buy 4D for me not. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Alright. But, 
he didn't really follow up for the next couple of days, but apparently the number won and it won quite big. Okay. And he went to collect, right? He was like, hey guys, I heard the number one. But the Tans were like, nah man, we forgot to buy that day, which is also possible, right? Fair enough, yeah. I mean, you don't really have an obligation to buy 40 for someone, right? Exactly. But he didn't believe them. And a little while after that was when they bought their minibuses for their minibus business. Oh. So now they could have totally been saving all this time, but yeah. like to somebody, you know how that looks because he was like, oh my God, they totally collected the money for themselves. Okay. And then he carried out his revenge. But because the guy that he knew, the murderer, he was involved in a gang. And back then gangs were big, scary businesses. Yeah, like, kind of. yeah, yeah, like gangs would fuck you up. Gangs collected like protection money and shit then. Mm. Nobody wanted to say anything. See, like, remember how the auntie was coincidentally not there that morning? I see. Oh, but that would be... I mean, if the Tans knew that he was in a gang and they didn't buy 40 for him and try to swindle him, that's really quite like a risky move for it. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, but this theory, the person who wrote the theory, did, did he know the family? Or like, how did yeah, he... Yeah, he was like, you, this is the internet, so you can't really like... Verify. Verify. But he was like, oh, my parents knew the family and lived to, and was like a neighbor of the family. Right. And there were also like other nonsense theories, like one of the kids wasn't Casey's kids. Mm. And this was like a revenge killing by the actual dad and stuff. But... But those are really just nonsense theories, you know what I mean? Just mm. people speculating. Yep. After that, there were also rumours that people would still hear kids running and playing around the apartment at night. Mm, like haunted kind of Yeah, theories. and if you look through the windows, you can still see them running around. Mm. Go take a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a harrowing story. Yeah. Harrowing um, case, I mean... Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Briefcase. This is one of the more well-known cases in Singapore and really just one of the worst cases. Mm, yeah, it's really very horrific. Thanks for also being on the show, Ruben. Yeah, no worries, Daddy. Yeah, so not related. I took December off because I went on vacay. Long story short, WestJet is not great. We were delayed for like three hours. <laughs> yeah. And also, did you know that if you get delayed more than a certain amount of time, you can also apply for compensation. Also, Air Canada is not great and the counter staff were kind of rude that day. And they cancelled the flight like what, no, a day before. Yeah, I'm not sure why. So, first thing, we were running late and we couldn't find the check-in counters, alright? We were supposed to get a flight from Vancouver to LA to Singapore. And the thing is that the Vancouver to LA flight was supposed to be at 5pm, but they cancelled the night before and were like, surprise, they scheduled us for a flight that was supposed to like not make the... The connecting flight. Exactly. Yeah. So now they were like, oh, surprise, bitch, now you have to take the 1pm flight. Alright, so anyway, we couldn't find the check-in counters, and when we finally do, the usher was like... Why are you here at 11.30? You should be here at 11. So whatever, right? She gives us like a big scolding, but we managed to get in the queue to check our bags. And then after that, we get to the counter and they have issues with our names. Teddy. Teddy Teo. <laughs> right? And so this poor check-in attendant, she was so lost. She kept calling for her team lead. She was like, hey, help, help. I don't know how to sort out the names because our names are so hard. <laughs> Okay, but the team lead was just doing something else and basically ignored her. And like at, at the end of the day, the team lead never ever even came over to our counter to help. Yeah. And so this was delayed by like 15, 20 minutes and now the gates are closed. Now get this. 
the counter next to the one that that I was at, there was like a whole other family with the same issues. They couldn't find the gate. They probably got scolded by the gate auntie, whatever. They missed the flight. We missed the flight. Mm. And now we have to rush to get another flight. So we go over to Delta. And guess what? The Delta counter has the same issues with the names, right? But they managed to get over the issues in like five seconds. <laughs> they just override and like type in the names manually. Exactly. So, no, but the worst part is because we missed the, like another flight, we were about to miss our VTL back to Singapore. And then Singapore cancelled VTL. So we'd have been stuck there for like one and a half weeks because <laughs> the next VTL flight is like 23rd Jan. Right? And so... The Delta attendant at Vancouver International is a freaking gem. I couldn't catch her name tag correctly, but it's either Yuriko or Yukiko. So thank you, Yuriko or Yukiko. The Delta, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And she was like so good. She even managed to tell us how the layout at LAX was. And she was like, okay, you you can just go straight and collect your bags. And you can run from this terminal to the international terminal and it'll be fine. Your half an hour should be okay. She even checked, do you have your ESTAs? She was just so good. Yeah. And she like rushed through the whole thing so that you make the flight and... Exactly. Yeah, very very good. She was very good. Delta Delta was very good compared to Air Canada. Anyway, so now we're back for another year of a briefcase podcast. <laughs> Yay. What a break. <laughs> Especially since I just paid for hosting, which is $150 a year. <laughs> anyway, if you found today's case interesting, you can share it with your friends and follow us on Instagram at a briefcase podcast. You can always drop me recommendations and you can always find us online at a briefcasepodcast.com. And do join us next week for. Another briefcase.